Turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18 this morning, 1 Kings chapter 18. While you turn there, I want you to be praying uh, for the Fenolio family. Uh, they are right now at the hospital, and uh, hopefully Hannah will be uh, having a baby here very, very soon. So I want you to pray for them and for that endeavor. Now, if she has a puppy or a dinosaur or something, something went wrong, amen, but we expect her to have a baby. And uh, so I want you to be sure and pray for them. I'm excited for what God's done in their life, and, and you be lifting them up. And many folks have needs, amen. Tom would fail us to mention all the needs. Uh, there's folks sick, folks having surgery, folks bereaved, folks struggling, got kids that's messed up, grandkids messed up, and they just want to see God work. And I'm just glad that God is a, is a big God. I'm glad we never weary Him with our prayers. Uh, he gets weary with our hypocrisy, but he don't get weary with our needs, amen. Uh, we're a needy people, but we've got a great big God, and I'm so thankful for that. First Kings chapter number 18, to give you a little idea of what's going on in our passage before we read our text, uh, the children of Israel have been living in rebellion, disobedience, and sin towards the Lord. Uh, and uh, there is a form of pagan worship that has taken root in the northern kingdom of Israel called Baal worship. Now, Baal worship first appears on the pages of your Bible about 600 years earlier, back in the book of Numbers, whenever the children of Israel coming out of Egypt uh, are corrupted and are led astray by the Moabites uh, and the Amorites, and uh, they begin to worship Baal at a place that the Bible calls Baal Peor. And uh, they begin to worship this false god who was one of the predominant false deities, false gods, false idols in the ancient world. And they began this form of worship and it, it seemed to just intermittently pop up, sometimes for entire generations they would be held under its sway. And then God would move and God would work. God, through the book of Judges, He'd send a judge. Sometimes in the uh, books of First and Second Kings, He'd send a righteous king. But He was always seeking to woo His people back unto Him. I'm glad we have a God that's patient. I'm glad we have a God that's loving. I'm glad we have a God that when we get messed up, it don't mess Him up. I don't know about you, but sometimes, man, I guess this is a part of being married. Sometimes, you ever had one of them days where you woke up, your spouse was messed up, and it messed you up? You ever have one of them days? And uh, where they're just in a bad mood, something's wrong, something's out, out of order, and it just they're messed up, now you're messed up. Uh, that goes back to the old saying, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, amen? And uh, I'm glad when we get messed up, it don't mess God up. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I'm glad we have a consistent, righteous, immutable God uh, who does not lose patience with us. And so he would woo his people back unto himself. One of the darkest seasons of Baal worship throughout all of Israel's history happened during the reign of a king by the name of Ahab. Uh, part of the reason it was so severe is because Ahab uh, had a wife by the name of Jezebel, and she was a wicked influence in the kingdom of Israel. And though Ahab certainly permitted and participated uh, in the Baal worship, it was Jezebel that sort of promulgated it and propagated it. She, she uh, that pushed it and, and really encouraged the children of Israel to embrace Baal worship. Well, God, in mercy, answered that by raising up a man by the name of Elijah. 
Elijah is one of the great prophets in the Old Testament. In fact, he is uh, sort of identified with the ministry and office of a prophet. And Elijah was raised up for a season, for a moment in time, to stand against the influence of Baal worship in the nation of Israel. And so if you were to go back to the previous chapter, you would find that God raised up Elijah, who walked into the throne room of King Ahab, and declared unto him by the word of the Lord that there would be a famine in the land as the judgment of God for their disobedience. Elijah then turns around, walks out. I'm sure that Ahab was laughing uh, that day that he did that. He was probably laughing the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and then probably the day after that, it wasn't so funny anymore. Because it had not rained. And in fact, for three and a half years, it would not rain upon the land of Israel. God's judgment was resting upon the nation. God did some amazing things in Elijah's life during that season in chapter number 17. But when we get to chapter 18, the time has come for God to to uh, sort of address and to wrestle his people to a place of submission. And Elijah's responsibility is now to go and to meet Ahab and to challenge Ahab to, we call it sometimes a showdown, to meet them on Mount Carmel. And Elijah says, we're going to settle this thing once and for all. We're going to go up on Mount Carmel. I want all of the nation of Israel present there. We're going to build an altar, and I'm going to take a bullock, and you're going to take a bullock, and your prophets of Baal are going to sacrifice and offer that bullock and worship their false god. And then afterwards, I'm going to take my bullock, and I'm going to slay it, and I'm going to worship the true God of Israel. And he says very simply, hey, whichever God answers by fire, let him be God. Uh, Man, there's so many things I can say about that. I do have a sermon to preach, but can I just preach before I preach? That'd be all right a little bit. Hey, we need to let Him be God. All the problems in your life and my life come from not letting Him be God. Now, I understand He's God whether I let Him be God or not, but my life would be a lot easier if I just let Him be God. Just trust Him, just follow Him, just obey Him. And then let me say this, hey, He'll answer by fire. He is the true and real God. And though I don't believe we should have a combative attitude towards God, the Scriptures tell us to prove Him, to try Him, to test Him, to see if He isn't God. And certainly in our life, and I say this to our young people especially, listen, you want a God that really answers? The God of the Bible is the one that does it. It's not the God of economy. It's not the God of education. It's not the God of social enlightenment. It's not the God of equity. Uh, Hey, it's the God of the Bible. He's the God that answers by fire. And when your life is dark and cold, and when you have a great need, He's the one that can work mightily in your life. Trust the God of the Bible, the God of your fathers and mothers, the God of this King James Bible. Trust that God, because He is indeed God. So Elijah gathers the children of Israel, and they gather together for this, we could call it a contest, a showdown, but it was really a proving ground to show who was truly God. And we pick up our text in verse number 20. First Kings chapter 18, verse number 20. The Bible says, So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The people answered him not a word. Then said Elijah unto the people, I even I only remain a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let them therefore give us two bullocks and let them choose one bullock for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on wood and put no fire under. And I will dress the other bullock and lay it on wood and put no fire under. 
And call ye on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock for yourselves, and dress it first. For ye are many, and call on the name of your gods, but put no fire under. And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it, and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. By the way, man, let me... mm, can I just say what you're seeing is a picture of the modern day contemporary movement. They got to put fire under because there ain't none coming from above. And then when it don't burn, they just jump on it and leap on it. And they think through activity and through energy and through entertainment, they can produce something that can only be produced by the hand of God. Say, preacher, you think you got it figured out? No, I'm saying I ain't the one that can figure it out. I'm saying I need him. Amen. I'm saying I don't want no fire under. I want that fire from above. That's the only thing that can change lives. That's the only thing that can make a difference. They put no fire under. And the Bible says, verse 26, they took the bullock which was given them and they dressed it and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar that was made. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is talking, or he is pursuing, or he is in a journey, or peradventure he sleepeth, and must be awakened. And they cried aloud, and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets, till the blood gushed out upon them. It came to pass, when midday was past, and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that there was neither voice, nor any to answer, nor any that regarded Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bullock in pieces, and laid him on the wood, and said, Fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. He said, do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, do it the third time. And they did it the third time. And the water ran round about the altar. And he filled the trench also with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is the God. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for the Word of God. May you use it in a way that would minimize me. Lord, diminish me and exalt Christ. Lord, may may I decrease. May He increase today. May this entire sermon be about you and what you can do in our lives. And may you receive glory under your name. Father, we love you. We're trusting you for what will take place. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.
Now, when we approach this passage of Scripture, let me just say, all Scripture is given uh, for, uh, by inspiration of God for instruction. But there are a lot of instructive things in this passage. And I don't say that to diminish any other passage, but I just mean, man, there's a lot of things we could say about it. Some we've already said this morning. Man, listen, we need to let Him be God. He's God. Uh, if we want the real God, the true God, we're going to find Him in the God of the Bible. He's the one that answers by fire. I would say that it informs our worship. We don't have to put no fire under, man. We just need to get everything in order and wait for God to send fire from above. There's a lot of Christianity today that ain't about God manifesting something, but it's about them manufacturing something. And you can tell that by their focus group driven form of worship. You can tell that uh, by the highly choreographed and, and, and meticulously coordinated form of worship that they have. They're doing the same thing that charlatans and hucksters have done for 200 years in trying to bend and warp the mind of people, get them to believe and sense and feel things that are not true and that are not real. And I'd just say this, hey, listen, if He's such a great God, uh, we can just let Him be God and He'll show how great He is. We ain't got to try to work it up. We ain't got to try to manufacture it. We ain't got to try to kindle a fire. We just get everything ready for God, and then God shows up. I would say this, part of the problem, why they have to manufacture everything, is they ain't getting everything ready in the first place. They've got to build fire underneath, because His fire ain't coming. Amen? And so there's a lot of instructive things in this passage of Scripture. We could apply it to our worship. We could apply it to our walk. We could apply it to our work. But I want us to think about this passage of Scripture in a certain light this morning. And I want to read a New Testament verse to you that will help frame what I want to preach to you. This altar is a place of sacrifice. It's a place where God is met with. But above all, it is a place where honor is rendered unto God. Uh, The Bible tells us that whenever Elijah gets to that altar, that altar is all in disrepair. And his job is to get that altar in a right condition for God to bless it and for God to use it. I want you to think with me about this verse in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So we could talk about this passage in terms of our worship. We could talk about this passage in in terms of our works, what we're doing for the Lord. We could talk about it in terms of our walk with Him. And there's much to be said about our devotional life and, and, and how we communicate with the Lord and how we walk with Him day by day. But I want us to instead think about this passage in this context. This altar is in many ways a picture of a person's life. It's the framework upon which they offer their bodies a living sacrifice. And can I tell you this? Hey, listen, there's a lot of people whose lives are in disrepair today. Their lives are not fit to present before God. Hey, that's what Romans 12 says, that we may present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And I'll tell you this, a lot of our lives are neither holy nor acceptable unto God. When we come to this passage of Scripture, we learn about this truth. I want to preach to you today on rebuilding the altar of our lives. Getting our life in a right condition with God. That includes our worship, it includes our walk with Him, it includes our devotional time, includes all these things. 
But instead of narrowing in on one, I want you to instead look at the scope of your life and ask yourself this. Am I giving God a holy and acceptable sacrifice with the way I'm living my life? Notice three thoughts with me and we'll be done this morning. I want you to think with me first about what we learn from the forsaking of the altar. You see, this altar wouldn't have had to be fixed if it wasn't broke in the first place. I'm glad we have a God that fixes broken things. By the way, we have a God that breaks fixed things. <laughs> over and over in the Bible, what you find is you find God breaking things that are whole and making whole things that are broken. And this is a process and function of what God does in our lives. But I'm glad to report to you today, you say, Preacher, my life's all broken. I've sinned. I've messed up. I've got bitterness in my life. I've got disobedience in my heart. I've made mistakes. I've wrecked my testimony. Preacher, my life is in a mess. Good, you've come to the right place. When you've come to the God of the Bible, you've come to the only person who can fix broken lives. And so it is no barrier to God. And I think it's important that we understand how we got that play that way in the first place. Notice three things about the forsaking of the altar. How did this happen, preacher? How did they get in this shape? Well, I'd have you notice, number one, that the altar was deserted. And that's how it got in this shape. Look back with me at verse 21. Now, again, I understand that there is the altar in the temple at Jerusalem. I understand there was an altar that they would have worshipped at, uh, though it was not the authentic one in the northern kingdom. But what I mean particularly is the people's devotion to God. And verse 21 says this, Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? In other words, they hadn't cast their lot with God. Nor had they entirely abandoned the concept of God, but they were halted between two opinions. He says, if the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. They refused to make a decision to go 100% in on the God of the Bible. Then Elijah, he reveals just how dire things were. Verse 22 Elijah said unto the people, I, even I, only remain a prophet of the Lord. In other words, Elijah is saying, the problem you have is not that you've been following God closely and something went wrong. It's that you first ceased following Him in the first place. We find this lesson illustrated beautifully in the New Testament. Uh, the only episode we have of sort of the teenage years of our Lord Jesus Christ, whenever He's taken to Jerusalem at feast time, uh, and uh, the Bible tells us that uh, during that time uh, that He was separated from Mary and from Joseph, His stepfather. And the Bible says afterwards that whenever Mary and Joseph left the city, they journeyed for three days and they wist not where He was. In other words, they quit drawing and walking close to him, and that's when they lost track of his presence. Peter got into trouble when he did what? When he followed the Lord afar off. Can I tell you this? Hey, listen, you want your life to get messed up? And I don't know what he does, but I'm saying you want your life to be in broken pieces? It doesn't take making a resolved commitment to live in sin. Very few people whose lives are broken did they set out to break them in the first place. Here's what happened. They just quit walking with him. They just quit following Him. They just quit worshiping Him. They deserted the altar. Can I apply this to your devotional life? Hey, listen, the quickest way to get messed up, quit reading your Bible. Quit praying. Quit walking with God. Quit living consciously in His presence. Quit living day by day close to Him. See, here's where it all began. This false altar could have never existed in the northern kingdom had it not been that they had split off and forsaken the true altar 
in Jerusalem in the first place. And it always begins in our life with a deliberate decision, as the church at Ephesus did, to leave our first love. I would say this, the altar was deserted. That was part of the problem. But not only that, look down at verse 28. The prophets of Baal, they're they're frustrated. They've been praying for hours and hours. They no doubt are exhausted. And for them, this was a very arduous activity. Whenever Baal didn't answer because Baal can't answer because Baal ain't real, they began to leap upon the altar. And when that wouldn't get the job done, notice this. The Bible says in verse 28, they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets till the blood gushed out upon them. They, in a hysterical, fanatical frenzy, begin to do self-harm and to injure themselves to somehow appease God. Can I just pause and say this? Hey, the God of the Bible doesn't want you to hurt yourself. Uh, This has to be said in this neo-pagan culture we live in today. The God of the Bible doesn't want you to take your life. The God of the Bible doesn't want you to physically harm yourself. He doesn't ask that of you. He went to Calvary's hill. He gave His life. He gave His life that you might live and not die. And certainly we see that much of modern pagan Christianity, and I'm deliberate in my choice of words there, pagan Christendom is, is, is locked in on, zeroed in this notion of creating in people such an emotional and, and adrenaline-driven uh, hysteria that they begin to just operate and act outside of their own sense and their own rationality. That's nothing new. Pagans have been doing that since pagans began to pagan. That's nothing new. You see it all through the contemporary movement, the contemplative prayer movement, the charismatic movement, uh, the the holy laughter, the, the the speaking in tongues, the slain in the spirit. Every bit of that. There ain't just there ain't even an, an ounce of Bible on any of that. And that is neo paganism. And it has its roots in ancient mystic paganism. And we see it here in practice in this passage. But here's what I want you to understand. When God constructed for the altar to be built, His intention was not that a human being be offered upon it, but rather that an animal be offered upon it. And in fact, they, when they, leaping upon the altar, began to cut themselves and their blood ran out upon this altar. Here's what happened. The altar was deserted, but number two, the altar was defiled. It was now unclean. It was now unfit. You say, preacher, why why did Elijah put all that water on the altar? Well, one of the reasons is he wanted to convince and ensure that people understood this was God that answered. But another thing is he was washing away that filth that had been left on that altar. He was ceremonially cleansing that altar. And you know what happens in a lot of people's lives. One, they desert the altar. They quit walking with God. And then number two, they defile the altar through sin. I, I promise you, listen, I promise you, you want to get out of church, start letting sin in your life. Won't be long. You'll, you'll lose your joy. You'll lose your happiness. You'll become bitter. You'll become a critic. All of a sudden, every little thing will bother you and will bug you. And it won't be long. You'll find out that you're better off in the recliner than at the house of God. And you'll be one of those people that you've met door knocking that used to go to church somewhere 20 years ago. What happened? How'd that take place in their life? Well, they allowed something to get in between them and the Lord. And I promise you, listen, God won't walk with sin. Uh, The Old Testament prophet said, how can two walk together except they be agreed? God won't walk with sin. If you live with sin in your life, sooner or later, that's going to create a separation in your walk with God. I see the altar was defiled. Notice number three. I like this verse 29. The Bible says this. It came to pass when midday was passed 
and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that there was neither voice nor any to answer nor any that regarded. Preacher, how did the altar get in this shape? Well, first it was deserted. Second, it was defiled. And here's where it landed. The altar was dead. No one answered. No one heard. No one replied. I love Elijah's response. He begins to mock them. And uh, how do I say this delicately? There is a certain biblical nobility and precedent to making fun of foolishness. And I, I'll tell you this, we, we, we argue with a lot of people we should shame. We argue with a lot of people we should shame. We spend a lot of time on the uneven footing of their poor logic trying to convince them about things that they have not been logically convinced of in the first place instead of just looking at it upon the, the bold face of it and laughing at the absurdity of it in the first place. Man, I could give you a thousand examples of that. <laughs> I really kind of want to, but I have a message to preach. Hey, you don't have to argue with people about gender. You understand that they, flying in the face of science, biology, and 6,000 years of human history, the burden of proof is on them to prove to us that now all of a sudden there are like 60 million genders. I, I, you know, I was contemplating this thing the other day, and I thought about this, and, and I, I, I looked over at my wife. We were just sitting there on the couch, just doing nothing. We were sitting there. And I looked over at her and I said, you're a trans woman. I don't know what she was thinking about, but it wasn't that. Because she looked shocked when I said it. She said, what? I said, trans women are women. If trans women are women, then women are trans women. You're a trans woman. And she just looked at me stunned. And I said, but that makes me a trans man. Because trans men are men. So if trans men are men and trans women are women, then men are trans men and women are trans women. (laughs) Which means at the end of the day, there's no such thing as a trans woman. Because trans women are women. And so a person is either a woman or a man. We used to have this figured out. How'd we lose the stream of that somewhere along the way? You know? And there's just a lot of stuff we argue that, hey, there's a biblical precedent for shaming and mocking. And, and, and let me say this, it should not be done with an ugliness. But with discernment and discretion, we should laugh at the absurdity of wickedness. Hey, God laughs at the calamity. We, it's okay. And again, we need, we need to temper that with love, speak the truth in love, be, be kind, but people need to understand that some things are stupid. Hey, listen, I like a lot of what Elijah does. He begins to mock them. And, and here's the deeper point. Listen, it, it, just in case, in case somehow you were robbed of your irony bone whenever you were born, His point is, you're praying to him because you think he's a God. And he's trying to get him to understand he's he's not a God. You're following a a, a false fantasy into hell. It's not a real God. If he was, he would answer. And you'll see that in a moment when my God answers. Listen, I would say this. How absurd is dead Christianity? 
It's an oxymoron. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And often in people's lives, when they get all messed up, it's because they let their Christianity grow dead, stale, stagnant, and cold. Man, listen, it don't bother the kind of worship we have today. It don't bother me. I love it. It don't make me nervous. I, I'm sure there's people it makes nervous. I don't, it don't make me nervous. I, I glad, I, I'm glad knowing, hey, listen, when God starts moving on hearts, I know He showed up. The fire doesn't bother me. Hey, it's the cold that bothers me. And in your life, if you yield yourself to a dead form of Christianity, and very often that's what happens. People's walk with God begins to decline. They then reach an inflection point, a crisis point, a decision point, where they have to say, I either have to swallow my pride and admit that something's wrong in my walk with God. I'm miserable, I'm unhappy, I'm broken, I'm bitter, and I need to bring that to God so He can fix what I can't. Or they put on the hypocrite's mask. And they say, I'll just pretend like everything's okay. And listen, when you finally do that, remember hearing a man say years ago, when a, when a person learns to be a hypocrite, there's no stopping them. There's no breaks. When you're willing to, to, to put on a mask before God and man and pretend to be something you're not, there's no stopping you. There's no checks in your life. There's no balances. There's no breaks. Anymore, And so here this altar winds up in this awful condition. Why? Well, it was deserted. It was defiled. And finally, it was dead. But I'm glad our story does not end there. I see the forsaking of the altar. But I'm glad that God sent His man to fix the altar. And let me say, when I say His man, I, 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 I ain't talking about the preacher. By the way, you know Elijah's name. It means that Jehovah is God. Jehovah is God. He was a testimony that Jehovah is God. And in many ways we find in this passage that Elijah is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and what He can do in our lives if we'll bring our life to Him. And notice there's a few things that took place in this passage. I see the fixing of the altar. Notice number one, Elijah repaired the altar. Now, I don't know if you have noticed this, but it's thought-provoking. The Bible says in verse 30, Elijah said unto all the people, come near him. Let me pause and say this. It will take your participation. He told the people, come near. It took their participation. They had to draw close. And I would say, if we're not willing to draw close, it's a non-starter. It's a non-starter. He said unto all the people, come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Now, verse 32. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Now, I don't know if you noticed that, but that seems to be disconsonant. At first, it says there's an altar there, and he fixes it. But then afterwards, it says he goes and takes 12 stones, and he begins to build another altar. So what does it mean? When the Bible says that he repaired the altar of the Lord, you know the first thing you've got to do when you go to fix something is get what's broken out of the way. Here's what he was doing. He was cleansing the rubble of that pagan altar out of the way. He said, we got to start from scratch. we got to get that out of the way. All that brokenness, all those things. And by the way, hey, listen, if it's not an altar, it's an obstacle. Oh, my soul, listen to me. In your life, if it's not an altar, it's an obstacle. What about, hey, listen, that job, is it an altar or an obstacle? That relationship, is it an altar or is it an obstacle? Hey, listen, that money, is it an altar or is it an obstacle? 
in your life, the things you have, or do you view them as a, a scene and framework and means to glorify God or as something that is pulling intention and opposition against the Lord? He Listen, it was just an obstacle. And he had to get what was messed up out of the way first. Can I say in our lives the first step is we've got to take that thing to God and we've got to ask God to cleanse us of it. When are we going to get it in our mind? Preacher's been saying it for, I don't know, I guess, you know, uh, ever since preacher's been preaching, that a sin of omission is still a sin. You not doing what you're supposed to do is a sin, just like you doing what you are not supposed to do. You say, well, preacher, I ain't done nothing. Well, that may be what you need forgiveness of. Listen, I'm just as sick of our politicians because of what they're doing as I am because of what they're not doing. Even if they quit doing what they're doing, they'd still need to quit start doing what the... I'm about to get tied up. I'm saying there's what they're doing to us and then what they're not doing for us. And I'm equally maddened by both of them. In your life, you say, Preacher, I, I haven't done anything. That may be the very problem that you need to bring to God. Or there could be some matter in your life of disobedience. But whatever it is, the first step is to bring it to God, to ask His forgiveness, to ask His cleansing, to repair what has been broken. Notice number two, not only did He repair the altar, I like this, verse 31, Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. Let me say number two, he personalized the altar. He took those stones. He had all the people gather around him and he said, Hey, tribe of Judah, this is your stone. Hey, tribe of Levi, this is your stone. Hey, tribe of Naphtali, this is your stone. Why did he do that? He wanted them to understand that this concerned them. It wasn't, mm, hey, it wasn't the prophets of Baal. They weren't the ones to blame. It was Israel. They were the ones with the true light. We get a lot, we get, mm, we get tore up at, at the world being the world. And I, let me just go ahead. I'm going to save you your cable news subscription. The world is going to continue to be messed up. And it's going to be messed her up and messed her up more day by day than it was the day before. And you are going to continue the rest of your life to say, well, I've never seen anything like this. It's not going to get better. Hey, listen, the amillennialists had it wrong. It's not getting better. We're not on a trajectory up. We're on a trajectory down. And in our lives, hey, listen, we we need to understand that uh, until it becomes personal to us, we, we can look around and say, well, it's the world. The world's so messed up, preacher. The world's so broken. The world's always been broken. What do God's people look like? What do God's people look like? The fault does not lie with them. You say, but preacher, aren't they guilty? Sure. And a holy God's going to judge them one day. But they've always been guilty. If the church has grown tepid and lukewarm, it's not the world's fault. It's the church's fault. And in your life, if your life is in disrepair, you've got to quit blaming other people. I know that's real simple, but we seem to really struggle with it. Your problems are your problems, not somebody else's. And until you face that, nothing will change in your life. As long as you can seek to to port out all your problems and, and lay them at someone else's feet, here, guess what? They ain't going to fix your problems because they ain't their problems. You can say it's their problems, but that don't change the fact that it ain't no skin off their nose whether you get messed up or whether you get right. 
And so until you own the problems in your life, you're never going to see change. I see he personalized the altar. Verse 32 says this, With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood, I like this phrase, he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid him on the wood. In other words, he repaired the altar, he personalized it, but then he ordered the altar. He didn't just throw it up there haphazardly. He understood that if God was going to move on an altar, it had to be an ordered altar. He had to set things in a right position and and consideration if he wanted God to move. Here's what we often want to do. We want to come down and take all that rubble and pile it at the altar and say, God, forgive me. God, cleanse me. God, help me. God, guess what he does? He forgives you. He cleanses you. He helps you. But then you go right back to the same disorderly, chaotic, spiritual existence that you were in. You go back, you don't fix your Bible reading, you don't fix your prayer time, you don't fix your testimony, you don't fix your witnessing, you don't fix your faithfulness, your attendance to church. I mean, listen, we've not hit the ball about this thing. You understand this, right? I can't fix you. These people can't fix you. Only God can fix you. Only He can do this. And you're going to have to follow the prescription of His Word, the order that He set forth. And it's not to be barely there. It's to be all in. You've got to set your life in order. Why would you think that you could go back to that same life and not see any, or see any change when nothing has been changed? I see He ordered the altar. And then I see this, verse 33. He said, fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Now, this is interesting. Uh, water in the Bible is, is indicative. It pictures two different things. Okay, Water, when it is being consumed, it pictures the Holy Spirit. Water, when it is cleansing, washing, it pictures the Word of God. And there are some other situations. Water may have some significance, but predominantly, those are the two ways that water is used to picture things in the Bible. It's either consuming or it is cleansing. Can I ask this question? What was this water doing? Well, we know that it was cleansing away that which had been defiled. But the Bible says that the fire from heaven consumed it. So you say, well, preacher, which is it? And I say, yes. I think it's a picture of both the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Funny thing about it, where you find His Word, you'll find His Spirit. Where you find His Spirit, you'll find His Word. Ooh, I'm going to say that again. Where you find His Spirit you'll find His Word. If you're in a place that claims to have the Spirit of God working and moving, but it ain't got no connection to the Word of God, it's, 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 it's false. It's not true. It's not legitimate. Because let me tell you what, what the Spirit of God does. He talks about Christ and He wields His sword, the Word of God. And so I would say both of these things go hand in hand. And here's what Elijah did. He said, fill it up. Cover it over. Press down. Shaken together. Spilling over. Abundant. Take all the water we got and put it on there. You know, it's no wonder we feel like God's limited in our life. We limit Him. We limit Him. We say, God, I'll follow you this far, but if you ask this much of me, that's too much. And then we say, why won't God work more in our life? (laughs) Well, very simply, because you've told Him not to. You've told Him not to. You've said, now, Lord, I'd follow you in this way, but I won't follow you in that. You've limited him. I wonder what God has ever done 
that would cause us to limit Him? Has He ever taken us too far? Has He ever left us out to dry? Has He ever not met our needs? God has never once done anything that would lead you or I to believe that He cannot be fully trusted. We have counted Him faithful. He is a trustworthy God. Why do we limit Him? I like what Elijah did. He didn't limit Him. He said, let's just pour it all on everything that we can, everything that we've got. I see He saturated the altar. And then verse 34 says this. He said to him, do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, do it the third time. And they did it the third time. And the water ran round about the altar, and he filled the trench also with water. In other words, it was filled entirely. Listen carefully. It was filled entirely, but not the first time. It took another time. And then it took another time. But sooner or later, that trench filled up. Can I say it this way? He attended the altar. He didn't come and say, I'm going to order it, pour water on it, and then walk away from it and assume everything will be okay. He kept coming back to it. He kept coming back to it. He kept over and over and over. It didn't get filled the first time. It took more than one time. I remember hearing an illustration years ago. Well, it wasn't an illustration. It was a story is what it was. Dr. Tony Hudson was telling a story about being in a revival meeting one time. And, and he, he I don't know if Dr. Robertson, Lee Robertson was preaching or, or I think that he was. And, and uh, he had had him into his church. And, and uh, Dr. Robertson, he got, he got done preaching. He, he was preaching about being burdened for souls. And, and uh, he got done preaching. He gave an altar call. And, and somebody came down and prayed for you know, a couple minutes or whatever and, and, and got up and went to go back to, to their seat. Dr. Robertson, he looked at the young man. He said, sir, sir. And the fellow was startled. You know, you would be if somebody called you down like that. And the preacher did. And he said, yes, sir. And he said, who were you praying for? And he said, well, I was praying. I don't know if it was a brother or cousin, but praying for somebody on my heart. He said, are they lost? He said, yeah, they're lost. He said, well, how old are they? He gave however many years, 24, 25 years old. He said, so the devil's had them for 25 years. And you think 25 seconds is going to get it done? He said, why don't you come back down here and pray and let's get some of these men to come help you pray. And then he looked over at another lady and she got up and went to go back to the altar. And he said, excuse me, ma'am. And she looked at him and said, yes. He said, were you praying for somebody that was lost? And she said, yes, I was praying for, uh, you know, my nephew or whoever it might be. He said, well, how long have they been alive? And she looked at him and said, Well, honey, you're my husband. You know he's been alive 30-something years. And he said, uh, honey, the devil's had him for 30-something years. It's going to take more than 30-something seconds. Some of y'all come pray with Miss Robertson. And they turned around and looked at Tony Hudson and said, I can tell you what your problem is. You don't know how to give an altar call around here. (laughs) We think the first time. We like that. We like the first time. But can I tell you this? It takes consistency in our life consistency. I see he attended the altar. And then I like this, verse 36. It came to pass at that at the time of the offering, of the evening sacrifice, that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. So preacher, what did he do? He used the altar. 
Wouldn't it have been a shame after all that work to just turn around and walk away? Isn't it funny how we'll put so much effort into religion in our life and so little into the relationship we have in Jesus Christ? Say, preacher, what do I ultimately need to do? Use it. Now you say, what do you mean, preacher? Use your life as a framework to yield your body a living sacrifice unto God. What a shame it'd be to go to church and never need any of it. What a shame it'd be to get everybody's prayers and never need any of them. What a shame it would be to learn so much of the Bible and never use any of it. And in your life, what a sad testimony it would be for you to devote yourself to the Lord, but then when the moment comes that you yield your time, your treasures, your testimony, your talents to God, that you balk and say, I've done enough. Listen, we've got to use the altar. You say, preacher, what do you see in this passage? Well, I learned some things from the forsaking and from the fixing of the altar. But then notice finally, and I'm done, I notice some things from the fire on the altar. I like verse 38. I like it a lot. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. What can we learn from this fire? Well, I want you to notice we learn some things. We learn about the sacrifice from the fire. The fire teaches us some things about the sacrifice. You want to know what your life looks like before God is the fire falling on it. I would say three things about this. Here's what we learned. Number one, the sacrifice was confirmed. God looked down, He inspected it, and He said, yep, I'll move on that altar. (laughs) I'm glad God moves on rebuilt altars, aren't you? I'm glad no matter the brokenness in our life, no matter the disrepair in our life, no matter the chaos in our life, I'm glad if we'll come to God and get it right with Him, that God won't turn His nose up. He'll move on the rebuilt altar of our life. I can't tell you the numbers of times I've had people look at me and say, Preacher, can God use me? Yes! Yes! Let me save you and me both some time. Yes! If you'll be willing to rebuild the altar of your life and make yourself a sacrifice to Him, Yes, He can use you. I see the sacrifice was confirmed. Number two, I see the sacrifice was consumed. I hope they didn't name that bullock. One of the things you all learned that grew up on farms is there's certain animals you don't name. You don't name pigs. You don't name cattle, right? Uh, You don't name chickens. Because one day, you may have to eat them. Amen. Since we learned how to do stir fry, I quit naming cats. Amen. <laughs> My favorite jokes I tell are the ones that go like this. Ha 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 ha. Oh. <laughs> That's my favorite jokes that I tell. I know I've hit it right if somebody goes, you know. Hey, listen, I hope they didn't name that bullet. Because it was going to be consumed. I hope they didn't get too attached to that bullock. Because it was going to be consumed. I hope they didn't think that bullock belonged to them. Because it was going to get consumed. Hope they weren't relying on that for their supper. Because it got consumed. What are you saying, preacher? I hope you don't get too attached to those plans and dreams and ambitions. Because they're going to get consumed. Hope you don't get too attached to that pride. Because it's going to get consumed. If you're going to be what God needs you to be, 
If you're going to put your body as a living sacrifice, then you need to expect it to be consumed. And that means this, that whatever you thought it was might not be what it turns out being. And it means this, that whatever your plans and hopes and dreams are, you take them and lay them at the foot of Calvary and mortify and crucify yourself and say, Now, Lord, my life is not mine. I'm putting it on the altar for you. Noble ambitions have buried many a Christian. Easily justifiable desires have buried many a Christian. The good has robbed many of the best because we never learned to just put it at the altar and say, Lord, whatever you have for my life, that's what I want. I see that the sacrifice, it was confirmed, it was consumed. But I like verse 39. The Bible says this, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces. I bet they did. They didn't expect fire to fall. See, they thought that Jehovah was just as made up as Baal was. They didn't expect that. Shocked them. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is the God. And then for the people in the back, they said it again. The Lord, He is the God. I see this, the sacrifice. You know what it was? It was convincing. It showed people that didn't know if He was real, that He was real. Showed people that didn't know if he was real, that he was real. Some of y'all, you're witnessing to family members and loved ones and co-workers and neighbors. And you're saying, preacher, I'm just hitting my, I'm banging my head against the wall. I've witnessed, I've, I've argued, I've talked, I've convinced, I've, I've taught, I've done everything I can do. Preacher, what can I do? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. You know what he goes on to say? That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. When you do that, it proves some things. It tests some things. It evidences some things. And what you prove in evidence to the world around you is, hey, the, the will of God, it's good. The will of God, it's acceptable. The will of God, man, it's perfect. And then all of a sudden sinners start saying, that's God's will. That's what God wants to do with me. Boy, I'd love for him to do that in my life. Hey, it was convincing. And it's no wonder, man. It's no wonder that a lot of people have trouble believing Christians when you feel like Christians have trouble believing the Bible. And you say, well, how do you know they have trouble believing it? Because they don't obey it. You want to be convincing. You want to be a witness. Do it by making yourself a living sacrifice. Let's bow together this morning. Musicians are going to come and play. And I want to give you the opportunity to pour the first barrel. It won't be the last one. It'll be the first one. I want to give you the opportunity to take and bring that rubble down and let God clear it away. I want to give you the opportunity to quit halting between two opinions. And I want you to avail yourself of that moment right now. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.